All right, welcome everybody to episode 42, Neurogenesis. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. And this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. What up, Yosef? Hey, how's it going over there? It's feeling like spring up finally, right? Yeah, I think this is a better time for me to wish you a happy spring. Yeah, uh, last yeah. time it wasn't really so much. Yeah, man, and uh, it's going to be like 70 degrees here today in the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. I'm excited. I'm I'm ready to like s- sing and dance in the streets. I feel like it's been a long winter. I know, so, I know, uh, but it's it's here upon us, and that means that uh, the summer will be here, and that means you know, just I feel I'm out of my sad, my seasonal yes. depression, breaking yes. free of everything. Uh, so and, that'll be nice. And we've got quite the interview to go with it. So uh, Doctor Fred Gage, uh, Rusty, as he's called, right? Some people call him. Yeah, Rusty. we got Doctor Fred Rusty Gage, and that's why we named this uh, episode Neuro. Genesis. Yo, you must have like profound or, or very strong memories of reading uh, Gage papers in, in yeah. your neuroscience development as a, as a student. Definitely. You're like, who is this guy? Frank F. Gage. You see it like if you ever look up neurogenesis, you're like, he's in the what, 600 paper club. And I, I know. I remember, I, you know, when you know someone is important in, in your, uh, in your like, you know, and I guess in my science life is I know they're both his initials. I know he's F. Yeah, H. Gage. H. <laughs> yeah. Just because I know I've read so many of his papers, I know it's F. H. Gage. There's not many people I know with both initials, but we got. Um, Dr. Gage will come on in a little bit. He'll tell us, um, we're, we'll talk a little bit about past because he had such a tremendous, uh, you know, kind of game changing discovery, but has also contributed in other ways besides neurogenesis. So we'll talk to him a little bit about that, um, going forward. He's also very involved with the International Society for Stem Cell Research. So we'll, you know, he'll be a, a big speaker, a keynote. I don't know if they're keynotes or what, but big speaker at the, at the meeting. So I'm excited for that. That'll be good. How's uh, how you doing? How's work? All right, oh, research good. good. Yeah, things are good. You know, actually, going back to the interview, one thing I, w- I was embarrassed to ask him is if he's related to Phineas Gage. Do you know the guy who had the nail stuck in his head from like the 1800s? No, you know what though? It's funny you say that because when I was like looking up stuff to ask him, mm-hmm. I think he won- I think he claims, and I think might be jokingly, that he is a descendant of Phineas Gage. That's awesome. <laughs> One of the earliest cases of neuroscience of a guy who basically he was working on the railroads and had a a nail somehow got lodged into his brain and they never took it out. It was, it, it it sort of stayed there and. He was one of those cases of, uh, you know, brain disorders and, uh, how, how, I guess having a nail can affect that in your brain. But yeah, I didn't know that he was a direct descendant. So that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad you looked that up. Uh, but yeah, everything's good on my end. How about you? Everything is good. Everything is good. I, I, I got one of my grants back. I got scored, which is the first step in this. I want to curse world of grant writing. <laughs> so my grant was discussed. It was scored. I don't know if it'll be funded, but at least it's scored, which means I can resubmit and try to get the score better. Mm-hmm. So I'll live with that. Um, so I don't know. I'm hoping we just get a summer worth of data. Uh, hope the students in there are going to crank out some data and uh, we can continue to move along. But I think we should progress the show a bit. So otherwise we're going to, because I know it's funny. Yosef and I already pre-taped the interview with Dr. Gage. So we know what it will be. And Yosef and I were like kids. We could have talked to him for like three hours. Um, (laughs) It really sucked having to cut it short, but let's move it along so we can get there. We are the stem cell podcast, official, the official podcast of the ISSCR. 
the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Um, by now, you all know about. Uh, we've been talking about the meeting uh, down in uh, down in over up and over in Sweden. You can still register for the meeting, I believe, up until May sixth. Um, and and, and um, there are a whole bunch of things I was checking out. Uh, for networking. So if you go online, ISSCR.org and click on meeting, you can find networking opportunities, you know, different ways to meet up with uh, people in your, in your field or, or just, you know, this is part of one of the biggest part. I think really the most important part of a meeting is networking. You get to learn data and learn new stuff, but meeting people is really what you want to do. So go check that out and go register for the meeting. Um, make sure you go to stemcellpodcast.com, of course. Check us out. Sign up for our newsletter, which which you would get after every show. So we have two shows a month. As soon as we uh, the show goes live, we send everybody in the email the show notes. So it's the link to the episode, all of the uh, t- uh, papers we discuss, and backlinks to other episodes. So you're only going to get um, the email after the show comes out. There's no, as Yo says, there's no no spam. And we're almost uh, at a thousand likes for the Facebook page. We're like yeah, 10, let's, some, 10 someone likes someone push us over. Yeah, you could be the thousandth like. That'd be great. You could be the thousandth <laughs> like. I got. I told. I don't know if I talked about it on the show, but I told Yosef that we we made uh, stem cell podcast ties. Oh yeah, that's and uh, Anthony got you is yours. So I'm gonna I can bring it to you by uh, uh, May for for next gen. So they're really cool. They're really nice. We're gonna try to give them out to some of the speakers uh, to to wear during their talks. I know I got Paul Tizar on the hook for one. Uh, Paul will wear one during his uh, fancy award, uh, a major award that he will win. Nice. Um, Thanks, Paul. So <laughs> give, give podcast a little plug, and Paul will be on with us. Um, I think right before ISSCR uh, or right after to talk about his paper that will come out. Um, anything else from you before we go into the roundup? No, no. Uh, just anything for NextGen, the conference coming up? Yeah, NextGenStemCell.com is the meeting uh, NextGen Stem Cell uh, Conference, Saratoga, May 6th. Still can register. We got about 75 people right now, which is a great group. Um, we got great, uh, great lineup. Um, and it, it's just a really fun meeting. I, you've heard me talk about it a lot. I don't need to go into a lot of detail, but you should be there. You'll have a lot of fun. Um, and um, nextgenstemcell.com, use the code podcast. P.S. Yosef, real quick, I was in Puerto Rico this weekend uh, for a bachelor party. And uh, no, I'm not going to go into stories. But <laughs> I was in the pool, and I, my, the, the guys I was with were uh, making fun of me because I was the only scientist and um, these guys were like, "Yo, you know that stem cell stuff just sounds so cool. You, you can you can we can we tell all these girls that that there's a stem cell scientist around? Maybe that you know." And I'm like, "Guys, I don't really think that's very you know <laughs> going to make make a big difference. But you can do whatever you want." All of a sudden, I'm in the pool, and one of the guys comes over to me. He's like, "Go, Fasano, Fasano, Fasano! This girl's a stem cell researcher." And I'm like, "What?" So this girl comes over. She works at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. No way. In Lee Rubin's lab. No way. Awesome. Yeah, in Puerto Rico and this random thing. So we just started talking about our work, and we're talking about differentiations in the pool on a bachelor party. That's yeah, great. That, that, that's yeah, you, how they always stem cell biology all around. Yeah. All right, awesome. man. So let's move into the uh, let's move into the science roundup, which is uh, has sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Uh, Thermo Fisher has everything you need, trust me, to, to do your stem cell research and more. Go to stemcellpodcast.com, click on the banner, and uh, find out how they can help your work. They help mine. They help Yosis. They can help yours. Ro, Yos, you ready to go, man? Let's do it. Yes. Yeah, so there was a neuro-oncology paper. Uh, it was a genomic analysis of more than 700 brain tumors, and they showed that there's a subtype of glioblastoma multiforma, you know, that really 
aggressive Nasty, brain cancer. Yeah. yeah, that possesses thousands of tumor-specific DNA errors or mutations instead of the dozens that are normally observed. Now, counterintuitively, this is actually the, the more mutations is associated with longer survival. And the idea is that the greater uh, mutations may uh, trigger an aggressive immune response against the cancer cells while fewer mutations sort of escape detection they fly under the radar so uh you can find that neuro oncology i thought that was interesting though very cool yeah yeah it was like counterintuitive so i always love stuff like that um there was a nature cell biology study showing that it's possible to regenerate heart muscle cell numbers by up to 45% after a heart attack by turning on the neuroregulin pathway. So uh, just ramping that up, you could uh, increase your heart muscle generation after heart attack by up to 45%. Wow. Yeah, so nature cell biology. Uh, another nature article, uh, this came out, this is probably of interest to everybody out there with a smartphone, of a cheap, long-lasting, flexible aluminum ion battery that can be charged in as little as one minute. Uh, so they used aluminum to make the negatively charged anode while the uh, graphite was used as the cathode. And this one is safer in that it won't catch fire. <laughs> And uh, it went 7,500 cycles without loss of capacity, whereas it's usually a 1,000 cycles for a lithium-ion battery. So, um, you know, it seems to have all the properties you would want. It's flexible. Yeah, it's man. quick charging. Awesome. Won't catch on fire. Um, there was yeah, a, catching on fire seems to be a good thing. Yeah. Good quality in a battery. <laughs> uh, biology letters study of a black pole war warbler. This bird is amazing to me. It, it weighs four ounces and it flies 1,700 miles over three days. And this is unique for a forest-dwelling species. It goes from New England all the way down to Puerto Rico, where you were, and Hispaniola. And it has about half of them make it on this trip. I just thought it was just nature being wow, super man. efficient. Yeah, four ounces flying that far. Um, there was another nature study, uh, from the Boyden lab. This guy's like on the fast track for the Nobel prize. So not only did he, he like come up with optogenetics, but, uh, now he's, uh, create this thing called expansion microscopy. So instead of making the lasers more powerful to peer deeper inside the cell, they made the specimen bigger. So, uh, by expanding the specimen, it's called, uh, expansion microscopy. So they use the chemical that's used in baby diapers to create that sponginess, uh, effect. And it's called acrylate. And so, uh, it can form a dense mesh that holds proteins in place and it swells in the presence of water. And the process maintains the relative orientation and interconnection of proteins and keeps cellular structures intact with a distortion level of about one to four percent so they were able to expand the specimen four to five times in all three dimensions so this should be able to help in like you know visualization of really small small specimens i, yeah, I just man. Yeah. yeah man he's pretty badass he's a uh uh he's a new york stem new york uh stem cell foundation fellow too that's where i have crossed paths pretty badass oh, i know guy. that uh, nature study showing, man, I'm on the nature today. Showing yeah, you are. Human land use worldwide has resulted in a loss of 13.6% uh, of biodiversity over the last 200 years. So uh, dire warning out there. Um, there are ways to, to, to sort of curb this, but uh, we're heading for another 3% uh, percent, uh, 
loss of biodiversity by 2020. So uh, kind of a scary study over there. Um, there was an annals of neurology uh, on their external website policy paper showing that uh, they repurposed a drug called seroconatinib. Everything nib at the end, I guess, is a uh, antibody. So uh, it restores memory loss and reverses brain problems in a mouse model of Alzheimer's. So the team knew that a protein called fin kinase, F-Y-N kinase, uh, plays a central role in amyloid beta cluster damage, and this drug targeted it. And uh, so after four weeks in Alzheimer's disease like mice, uh, the drug completely recovered uh, spatial memory learning de- deficits and memory loss, as well as prevention of the characteristic synapse loss. And it's currently now in a phase 2A trial. And uh, it was through this wow. program, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's the National Center for Advanced translational sciences program of discovering new therapeutics using existing molecules that have FDA approval. So it's an innovative crowdsourcing uh, initiative from the NIH. So I thought it was cool that they're repurposing uh, this drug that's, you know, not, not meant for Alzheimer's, but... I'm a big repurpose fan. Yeah, sort of fast-tracks the whole drug discovery mm-hmm. process. Uh, there was a PLOS-1 public library of, study, uh, of science study showing that feeder cell culture conditions with mechanical cell passage uh, is, is best for passaging. Uh, so uh, you could use either enzymes to passage your uh, stem cells. Uh, so this is showing that actually using mechanical passaging was the best uh, had the least amount of gene- genetic changes over time the worst was feeder free with enzyme dissociation so it pays to have the feeders there and it pays to use mechanical de- uh, dissociation the uh, enzyme exposure was the biggest factor for making the cells less stable they found deletions in tp53 on human chromosome 17 was the most common mutation and it was present in all except for the feeder mechanical uh dissociation so i guess if you want the least man that's gen- really interesting man yeah p lost one i, I always use a, enzyme i know me too i'm like man mm-hmm. maybe i should uh mechanically passage um do you use feeders or not both oh, okay so uh, i'm i'm a feeder guy though yeah me too feeder. uh this this bolsters the feeder uh, there was a bioorganic and organic chemistry study showing that saccharin disrupts carbonic and hydride 9 in press, breast cancer cells. And this disrupts the ability to regulate the cancer cell's pH level, thus making it harder for the cancer cells to grow and metastasize. So it's kind of like the first time you see a good effect of saccharin. Um, yeah, really. Uh, there was a nature chemistry paper showing uh, a new primordial soup. So uh, they create a new nucleic acid precursor starting with hydrogen cyanide, which is known to be released by comets and was probably present in that you know early Earth uh, scenario, and then hydrogen sulfide, which came from volcanoes, and ultraviolet radiation from the sun uh, what, because there was no real atmosphere. So using those three elements, they were able to create nucleic acid precursors, and this may throw some weight towards the RNA world hypothesis versus the metabolism first hypothesis which involves metals and enzymes so uh kind of a big you know new idea in the primordial soup world and uh 
Finally, I'm going to end with a M-Bio study showing that malaria produces its own perfume. So the malaria um, parasite basically uh, can... Um, uh, it, it, I, in the host that it infects, it produces this thing called terpenes uh, in infected people. And the parasite uses a chloroplast-like organelle to produce this, these terpenes. And at low levels, it attracts the mosquitoes to the infected host. So much like uh, perfume works, like at lower levels, it attracts. And too high, it actually, uh, you know, causes the, the, the mosquitoes to go away. So these terpenes... Are, attract the mosquitoes even further, allowing the malaria to spread further. So uh, you can find that in M-Bio. And that's it for me. Anything wow, on man. your... That's yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Per, a malaria perfume, perfume. How do you want that in a bottle? Yeah, really. What's the... <laughs> what are you wearing? Malaria. <laughs> is, it sh- is it shaped like a, like a bug or something yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Malaria. That was good, Yos. You got a future in that. I like that. That sounds real good. Um, all right. I don't have too much, and that's a good thing because we want to get uh, to Rusty. So um, first, let me see here. All right. So we, we talked a lot last time about gene- genomic uh, germline gene editing, you know, manipulating Yes, the, the genetic, the gene, genes germline, like in sperm and egg, and therefore the resulting human or the resulting offspring would have an altered genetic, con, com, you know, composure, if you will, or component. So, um, there's a lot of rumors now going around that there are two papers in review where they've actually done this. Where they Church. Th- Say it again. Is George Church involved? I'm assuming. He's well, George Church is the one saying that he knows of some. Okay. Uh, so this was, uh, I was reading about it on Knopfler's blog, IPSL.com, and then I was looking at this article, um, why is why is the scientific world abuzz about an unpublished paper? And the answer, because it could permanently change human DNA. So scientists are, I guess, around the world now are anticipating, the re- it's a Chinese study. Mm. Uh, and there's there's rumors that there's an, an American one too in review mm. that would make make mark the first time DNA in a human embryo has been modified in a way that would carry into future generations. Mm. So it's saying like you know the embryos would be for study only and not intended for implantation. In other words, they're not intending to put it back into a human and create a a, a human you know a human. But um, the, the the significant milestone would be the first time human DNA have been altered so substantially that it would change the germline. And what's uh, it for? There's cystic fibrosis? Or? You know what? They're not saying, but you know what people are thinking? Low-hanging fruit are, are cystic fibrosis and BRCA1. Okay. Because we know BRCA1 is... is, is what's the percent on that for breast cancer? Yeah, it's pretty high, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's like half have it involved. Um, one and two, BRCA1 and two. I mean, look at... This famous story is Angelina, Angelina Jolie who had the BRCA1, so she got an, an elective mes, um, uh, double mastectomy, right, to, yeah. to just eliminate it. So and it's that high. Ovaries. So in theory, you would change your, gen- your genome of the egg and, and, and correct the BRCA mutation so your child would not have it. That, that, that would be the idea. So anyway, they're, they're just, you know, this is this, the, the rumors out there about yeah. these papers. So uh, <laughs> hope, you know, maybe they'll come out soon. We'll see. Um, this is in Farmer's Journal. All right, a farmer's journal. Meat grown in the laboratory soon to become commercially viable. Um, since according to a scientist who grew the world's first stem cell burger, meat grown in the lab will become commercially viable in the next decade. So there's this guy, Mark Post, uh, who grew the, world's wor- the, grew the world's 
first stem cell mincemeat burger in August 2013. Yes. At 296,000 euro it cost. Oh. And he said he can now grow the same burger for 13 13 euro. So so he's saying that, you know, um the technology has advanced to the stage where uh he can do it. The they brought it to this meeting and a stem cell burger which was cooked and eaten at a news conference in London was made from cells of a cow that are turned into strips of muscle to create a patty. So you can only grow these minces, I guess, because you blood flow is required to grow whole muscle. So they grow like mince meat. Oh, there was an expert a food expert there said it tasted at the time was close to meat, but not that juicy. And another said it tasted like real burger. The question, Dr. Gannett, would you have a stem cell burger? Man, I, I would I would say it does not sound appealing. And especially that price tag. Jesus, that's like I know. Half, half I know. a million dollars. I'm burger. hesitant to pay fifteen dollars for like a you know, a you know uh grass fed like, a, you like know. a Clark's burger or something yeah. like that. I'm not you know what I mean? Like but anyway, I I I, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just just too foreign for me to think about right now i have no idea yeah it seems like a solution waiting for you know i know i understand that you know the methane and all the greenhouse gases of uh uh you know creating burgers and meat but jeez i don't know it says it says that this method uses 45 percent less energy than the average global representative figure for farming cattle and it produces 96 fewer greenhouse gases and emissions and requires 99 percent less land so Man. That's the obvious, but I tell you what—if they're going to do it, they need to change it and not call it a stem cell burger. That yeah, not test two burgers sounds disgusting. Not going to help their case, man. <laughs> yeah. what, I like mincemeat patty. That's a little better. Um, yeah. All right, so new new Ricken chief pledges to restore public faith in the Japanese lab system. So the new, new president of the Ricken in Japan has started Hiroshi Matsumoto, uh, and he, you know, in the science article, he outlines the things that he's going to do to instill high standards of research ethics and uh, among individual scientists. As we know, the whole Rick and blew up with the whole staff controversy. And, uh, you know, this guy is now at the helm and he's trying to, uh, you know, trying to get the back on track. Cut out for him. That's for sure. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, stem cell therapy for dogs draws support and detractors. I've read about this a lot, Yos, where you can get, you know, stem cell treatments for your dog. Um, you can actually even clone your animal nowadays, but, this is an article article about Dr. Jeffrey Peck, who's a vet surgeon in Florida, and he is performing these stem cell trans, transplants, like orthopedics, dogs with hip dysplasia or arthritis, mm-hmm. uh, and it's about fifteen hundred to three grand to the procedure. Uh, and he's saying, showing, you know, telling you about all the results and how these dogs are like remarkable, and they they talk to owners, and the owners are like, it's incredible. You know, my dog couldn't even walk and couldn't get up and all this stuff. So uh, all those is, you know, claims are now uh, happening in dogs. I'm kind of into uh-huh. that. My mom's dog's back leg is she's limping a little bit. So I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, a dog that can't get up. It's pretty sad, man. Yeah, I mean, it is sad. You feel for it. Uh, stem cell reports, human embryonic and induced pluripotent stem cell research trends complementation and diversification of the field. This is such a cool article, Yosef. I know you find it interesting. So, um, you know, Research in human iPS cells has been rapidly developing, right? And there are expectations that this may kind of obviate the need to use human ES cells, which we always say are the gold standard, right? Mm-hmm. Because human ES cells uh, were the cells of the ethics of which have been the subject of controversy for more than 15 years. So the iPS came out and they're like, we could just use iPS because we're not using embryos anymore. However, 
we say that the gold standard is human ES, therefore we have to compare. So in this study, they investigated approximately 3,500 original research papers that reported an experimental use of both types of, of these types of pluripotent stem cells that were published from 2008 and 2013. They found that research into both cell types was conducted independently and further expanded, accompanied by a growing intersection of both research fields. So in an in-depth analysis of all these papers that reported the use of both cell types, indicated that the ES cells are still being used as a gold standard, but in a declining proportion of publications. That makes sense. That Instead, makes sense. the expanding research field is diversifying, and, and human ES and human IPS are increasingly being used in more independent research um, application areas. In other words, every time you do IPS, you don't have to include ES. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's basically where that's maybe trending is that um, you know, human ES will be its own world. And yeah. that might be a much smaller world than IPS. Yeah, that, that I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, all right. For all you bald people out there, <laughs> uh, cell pub, this is a cell paper. Research reveals plucking may treat hair loss. What? So they're saying there's hope for people suffering from hair loss. A new study from scientists at USC found that plucking some hair may induce more hair to grow. Hmm. Uh, so this is uh, one of the authors, Professor Chang Ming. Changming Chuang of USC in a press release, they have successfully induced up to 1,200 new hairs after plucking 200 hairs in a mouse. Hmm. Um, saying the, the research is about how to uh, attract certain cells that would literally call for follicles to grow more hair by plucking. So it's probably recruiting stem cells down there in the niche when you pluck to re- regrow, and they're looking at them. There's a lot more looking at the molecular mechanism and how they get activated and things like that. That's funny. But That's one of those things you hear that like plucking actually causes more cells to grow. I've heard that just from like. I mean, it makes sense, right? You should yeah stimulate stem cell growth. They're looking at the molecular mechanisms and how it works. Uh, stem cells lurk. Lurking in tumors can resist treatments. This has been a hypothesis for a while. So scientists are trying to make use of stem cells power um, to kind of turn it into things. You know, we turn it into cell types. However, the property of stem cell that can also be bad is this quiescence where stem cells can live for a long time and slowly, slowly divide. And so there was a new paper in Cell Reports that uh, talk about um, in these uh, um, kind of brain cancers that there are stem cells that are less sensitive to these antimitotics these mm-hmm. chemos, and therefore, when we destroy tumors, we're not really destroying the uh, actual heart of the tumor cell. So, again, that's been around for a bit, but uh, n- some more evidence. All right, quickly, uh, nature, early reprogramming regulators identified by prospective isolation and mass cytometry. This is out of uh, Marius Wernick's lab, looking at reprogramming and what's going on there in detail in the, in the first beginning stages of mm-hmm. reprogramming. I won't get into that. Go check it out. And then a new um, uh, emergence of stage-dependent human liver disease signature with directed differentiation of um, some sort of deficient IPS line. They think they, they have uh, created this signature, if you will, that they can use to treat drugs for um, liver disease. So I, that was in Stem Cell Reports. Last author, Daryl Cotton with a K. Mm. All right. So let me end there, Yost, and let's, uh, let's, move on. let's move on to the next portion. Okay, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? All right, Yosef, thank you. It's uh, very exciting, especially for myself, probably for Yosef, who is a, is a neurobiologist and a stem cell scientist, to have uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Fred Gage, tonight on the uh, Stem Cell Podcast. Um, Dr. Gage is, a, is the Alder Professor in Laboratory of Genetics at the beautiful Salk Institute. 
and let me give a little bit of background here. Um, so Dr. Ga- Dr. Gage received his Bachelor's of Science degree from the University of Florida. I'm a University of Miami hurricane, so we have that <laughs> at odds there. Um, I also learned in doing some research that his birthday is the same day as mine, so that's very oh, interesting, geez. October 8th. Um, and then he got his PhD from John Hopkins University and then went on to do a postdoc at the Lund University in Sweden under the direction of Andres Bjorklund, who's um, you know, uh, just a, a pioneer as well. So we're really, really, uh, both both Dr. Gage and Andres Bjorklund, I grew up reading all, all so much literature, so this is really really nice. And in his lab, which he will go into more detail, I mean, really, Yosef, there was this dogma for a long time that the brain is just not plastic and what something, you know, there's nothing new going on in there. And if something happens, it happens and nothing can be replaced. And so uh, Dr. Gage is pioneering discoveries, among others, one of the really ones, and I remember reading this paper, definitively remember where I was, um, talking about how there is, in fact, a turnover in what we call neurogenesis or the generation of new neurons from a, a, a progenitor population in the adult human brain really kind of changed the way we thought about um, um, the adult human brain or just the brain in general and, and, and then when, went on subsequently to describe this process. Um, in addition to this, the lab is focusing on modeling disease in vitro, which we talk a lot about on the show, using human stem cells, the reprogramming techniques and such. Um, and then he's also, which I know Yosef is really excited to ask him about, studying genetic genomic mosaicism and uh, line elements and things like this. So I'll I'll shut up now <laughs> and I will introduce Dr. Fred Gage. Thank you so much and welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's just start. Let's dive in. Why don't you just give a little bit of uh, uh, background? Tell 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 the audience about your current lab, your your research work, uh, and, and and focus, and then we can kind of go back in time and back up to future. Well, I I think the globally you could say that I'm interested in what we call neuroplasticity, which is by plasticity scientists mean adaptation, how things change, and neurons are are, are changing all the time, and. I'm interested in how that happens from the outside as well as from the inside of the neuron. And probably the most robust way this this event of neuroplasticity is manifest is when a stem cell, an undifferentiated cell, forms into a neuron. So we're interested in how a completely undifferentiated cell gets the right signals from the outside which activate the signals inside the cell that differentiate it down very specific specific lineages. And whereas originally we were sort of interested in generally how do you become a neuron, now it's become even more intricate to decide how you become one type of a neuron versus another type of a neuron then maybe right next to it. And this, this idea of uh, neuroplasticity, neural differentiation, neural fate are all within the realm of things that are, are involved. And as you mentioned, um, we've been working in this area of adult neurogenesis, how there are cells in the central nervous system that can give rise to new neurons all the time. And while uh, we, we discovered this in humans, most of the experimental work is done in experimental animals. And I wanted to find a model system where I could see whether or not or, or discover or work on these mechanisms of neurogenesis in human cells. And that's why we moved more than a decade ago also to using human cells in vitro to look at the process of neurogenesis or specific fate differentiation and compare that across species, which has opened up a whole interest of mine in evolution and how different species 
uh, undergo these processes slightly differently. So we still work on adult neurogenesis in experimental animals working on the mechanisms of, of how they make their choice in an in vivo setting. And, and it's actually gotten to a stage now where it's not just understanding how it happens, but also why it happens. Why, why would the brain allow for new neurons to be growing all the time? So we're interested in that. But we do a lot of human work now, uh, looking at human neurogenesis, mostly in vitro, obviously, and comparatively looking at the, the uh, differences. This led us into the advantages of looking at um, human disease. And while we started in neurodegenerative diseases, I've really grown interested over the last period of time in affective disorders. And so we've put a lot of effort into thinking about these sort of diseases which have been neglected in neurosciences at a me mechanistic level. And now I think we have cellular molecular tools we can bring to bear on some of these diseases that have uh, not been attacked with that level so much. And then the third part is, uh, which I believe is sort of related, but uh, this idea that it's not just that there are differences between uh, between individuals and even between cells, but within cells and within a particular structure, there are genetic differences that exist within those cells, and this is the concept of mosaicism that we might get into a little later. Yeah, I, uh, we should probably just give a little background for the non-scientists out there. The two germinal zones in the brain that produce new neurons, the uh, subventricular or SVZ -E or SEZ, I guess the, the nomenclature keeps changing, but uh, that gives rise to new neurons in the olfactory bulb and then deep in the hippocampus, the dentate gyrus. So um, maybe I, you said why. Why do they, the, 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 does the brain... I, I, I remember the whole Elizabeth Gould versus Pashko Rakish debate about cortical neurogenesis and right. and how right. you know confocal microscopy became the standard after that. Um, but uh, in double labeling uh, brandly new uh, newborn neurons, but um, in the context of why just those two regions, uh, can you maybe just share your thoughts on to why those two regions and why not the the cortex? Right. Um. So, I guess one of the things you have to think about, first of all, is that um, when, I, when people ask me why it was so hard for people to come over to the dogma that new neurons are being born in the brain, because as you stated early on, our view is that the brain after birth is pretty much fixed, and if anything, it just declines. And how, how, how could you imagine overcoming this, uh, this dogma? Well, there's two things. One is... Just the idea that a, a neuron, which is a really complex cell, it's got lots and lots of branches on it, it, it connects with as many as 5,000 other cells at any one particular time, how could that cell undergo cell division? So that was one of the resisting uh, ideas. The other one was that you know, the brain is the site of our memories, the, of our awareness, of our consciousness of who we are, and if it's changing all the time, how do we retain a sense of who we are. These were the, the dogma that were sort of holding up this right. theme of the brain being fixed. So they, they were overcome in two ways. One is that neurons don't divide. The discovery was that there are stem cells in the brain. So it's not that mature cells are undergoing cell division, but rather that there are, there are primitive cells that are retained within the brain. It's a concept that may not seem so 
controversial now, but at the time, it really was quite, uh, quite controversial that the brain would have stem cells. What's that all about? Uh, and this is actually before we even thought about stem cells in the same way we think about them now. They were you know, neuroblasts or progenitor cells. We had other ways of describing them. But the other issue is, you know, if, if this was happening in all the cells in the brain, then, then our day-to-day activity or who we were as a person would change over time. And to that extent, was overturned because it, it is restricted. It really is only occurring in a few places. Interestingly, uh, we showed almost 20 years ago that it occurs in the hippocampus of humans. Um, but more recently, that's been, while that's been replicated in humans and all other species, the hippocampus has this neurogenic capacity. The olfactory bulb seems to be, neuro, olfactory neurogenesis uh, seems to be specific to lower primates mm. and to rodents. And it seems to be less, if not absent, in humans, which is a, a, a new finding and somewhat, still somewhat controversial, but we're sort of beginning to accept it. So why is it unique to the hippocampus? What is it about the hippocampus that allows for this to occur? Why would you, why would you allow it? You know, we always think that in... Cell division is about the most dangerous thing that a cell can do to undergo cell division because of all the DNA damage that can occur, or importantly, a cell may replicate too much and not stop dividing and form a tumor or something. So, you know, you, you have in the brain being so intricate in how it's, it's communicating with different cells, it'd be very careful about how much cell proliferation you have. So it has to be under very, very tight controls. So given that's the case, there must be a really good reason for allowing this to happen right. in the brain. And what's interesting, at a very uh, uh, general level, I'll tell you that there's a consensus that's emerging now of what role uh, neurogenesis plays in this structure called the hippocampus. Now, let me just preface this by saying hippocampus is in the temporal lobes of the hippocampus of the brain. It's bilateral and it's the structure that's important for the acquisition of new memories. This is where you, you, you form new memories, and, uh, but memories, of course, are a very complicated uh, issue. Uh, so let me just jump ahead and say that people have been, many investigators have been trying to figure out what, what rule does it do. So they've been either overexpressing, making more neurons, or making less neurons. The way biologists do is to have a knockout or overexpression study. And the general consensus now, coming from five, six, seven different labs around the world who are generally competitors with each other, are, are coming to a general consensus that the role that these neurons play in memory is that they are involved in what's called pattern separation and pattern integration. They are important for being able to make the distinction between two events that occurred previously that are closely related to each other. Mm. And... and and if they're very far apart, if they're very distant from each other, like if you're recognizing a face and it's, you know, it's quite, and you're looking at a person and you're trying to remember if, you, if you've seen this person or not, you're drawing up other images and you're comparing it to this to image. If it's very different, you can say that this is a novel person. I'm, I'm pretty confident I've never seen you before. Right. But if the face comes up and it's pretty novel, then you're running into this problem of having to associate other events associated with that face to try to place it in a, in a real uh, position and the closer these two events are in their 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 context or their timing or, or in, 
that's when you need these, these uh, new cells. The new cells are involved in the acquisition and retention of information that is very closely associated with each other. And it's falling into this general rubric we call pattern separation, or the ability to make distinction between events that are that are closely associated with each other. Does that make? Yeah, that does. Sense? That's that's incredibly specific. I mean, it's very uh, you know. It it's is got very a- specific, but if you think about it, it is the subtleties of life. This is what sure helps you to make the distinction. Otherwise, it's sort of a blur. Right. You know, it's different. Big events are different. But what about the subtleties? So it is about the subtleties. Yeah, and I, to that end, I was just wondering: is it is it when you make a new memory, are yeah. are you are you drawing on a born neuron that was already there, or are you just do, is your brain sending signals deep within that dentate gyrus? Okay, I need ten more neurons to memorize this. Like an army recruitment. Yeah, like, or, or is it are are they already there? And you're then you say, okay, replenish the stock that I just used. To make this new memory, I guess. Right. I, uh, I mean, yeah, no, skipping I LTP our, and all that. Uh, just uh, yeah, it, I think our, our knowledge of this is not quite in any form of memory is not quite that specific. But suffice it to say that when you're very young and you're acquiring new information about your environment, now you're looking at things that you've never seen before. Right. The color blue, the color red. Right. You know, a popsicle. You're <laughs> you're gaining new knowledge. This is when neurogenesis is at its peak. It's happening a lot, and it's involved. And, and those neurons that are active and acquiring information during those early experiences do mature, and they become part of the hippocampus, and they are involved and helpful in acquiring and recalling some of that information. As we age, the number of new neurons that are brought into the system are really declining quite, quite uh, re- regularly over time. So the view currently is that as we as we age, it's not so much that we uh, form, you know, de novo memories, so much as we see something and it looks similar. It may be relatively new, but we layer onto that past memory some new information that gives it a slightly different context, mm. so that it's not really a de novo, brand new color that we're learning. Right. It's a shade. It's slightly different. So. I like to say that as we get older, we don't really learn so much new as we add information into the context of the framework that we already see the world. I, can I just want to? It's really, it's really fascinating. But what I, I really, I would like to just go back just for a minute, if we could, because there's a lot of young scientists listening to this podcast, and I, I, I truly believe that you know challenging dogma is something that science is, should do you know you should the tr- scientists at least in me should should always be questioning and challenging and so when I, when i have someone or we have someone like yourself on the show who 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 did just that and you know uh, discovered something that that was kind of against what was the tradition if you will i, I always like to ask was it a little bit of serendipity was it some i mean did you was it a sequence of hypotheses that led you to this discovery of look there are these dividing cells that was there a little bit of whoa this is you know so just just for the audience a little bit take take us back there and 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 that time of discovery and kind of walk us through what was surrounding that yeah so the actual unique discovery was discovering that this phenomena was occurring in the human brain okay and that neurogenesis occurs in other species is was was around, but my interest into it came actually quite serendipitously. We were 
working <laughs> in genetically engineering cells to express growth factors. And there was a growth factor that had just recently been cloned at the time called FGF2. <laughs> and we uh, engineered this into fibroblasts, and we engineered it in a way that it either could be secreted or it could be layered along the surface of the cell. And the, the, the hypothesis at that time, a paper had just been published, and, and I was interested in how growth factors affected the brain 20-some-odd years ago, and new growth factor comes along that had the hypothesis that it was involved in making axons or processes grow out from neurons and makes them differentiate. So we had regular cultures of uh, hippocampal neurons in a dish, and we co-cultured them with our cells that were making FGF. Mm. And we look at the dish, and we're seeing these cells proliferate like crazy <laughs> in the dish. And we're saying, wait a minute, uh, this is supposed to be inducing differentiation, elongation of the cells. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a puzzle. It was serendipitous. And we actually thought we may have discovered a new factor that had been secreted from these cells accidentally because we overexpressed this, this new gene. Uh. It turned out that what happened was we were making so much of FGF that we revealed another mechanism. Mm. FGF at high concentrations causes proliferation. At low concentrations, it induces axon yeah. elongation. So the next step... You know, we, we saw this, we confirmed it, and we wanted to see what it did in vivo. And that sort of talk, took us in in vivo. And frankly, it was a very small part of my lab. And just a few postdocs, they got excited about this. And it was just, it, you know, it was like you said, you know, it was chance. But the, the, the question is, at that point, how far do you push this? How right. far do you go in to an in vitro setting and take it in vivo and see if you could actually induce neurogenesis enhanced neurogenesis right. by doing this. To, to jump forward after, you know, years, people were beginning to believe that it occurred in mouse and rat, but uh, there was controversy in whether or not it was occurring in the primate or not, the non-human primate. And so we decided that the only, uh, but the real question is whether or not it occurred in humans. So that's when we... I had some clinical physicians who were uh, fellows in my lab. Among them was Peter Erickson, who was doing sabbatical. And we decided, look, let's, um, let's see if we can see this in humans. And we knew that humans that had cancer were being treated with bromodeoxyuridine, a, a, a chemical that would label cells that were undergoing cell division. And then you could take the tumor out, section it, and count the number of dividing cells and get an index of how fast the cell was, was dividing. So uh, we figured that there were many patients out there already, people out there already, that had had an injection. So I called up friends of mine that were neuropathologists and got had brain sections of people that had peripheral tumors, and they had brain sections and paraffin-embedded brain sections, that we could look to see if we could see any BRD labeling. Wait, they the were brain. already processed and injected and just waiting for you to stain them? <laughs> That's great. The problem, the problem was, even though that was a brilliant idea, right. it was uh, we couldn't double label. Because it was fixed oh, tissue. Oh, that's a shame. 
compared to you, and we couldn't do the antibody on top of it. Oh, man. So these guys, my, my fellows, when they went back to Europe, they got involved in clinical trials and where, where patients had been injected with VRDU and linked to them in such a way that when the patients died, they sent the brains back to us in California oh, to develop techniques so we could freshly dissect and stain with antibodies to see if we could actually double label and see a neural marker overlying the VRDU. Which was at the time that was the it was the key to do it three you know three dimensionally as you point out show that it's actually in there, so that was that was just grunt work. I mean, yeah. it was just yeah. You know, but we had we had the um, I think the serendipitous point for us was getting into it to beginning to begin with with FGF. Mm. And and you've shown other you and others have shown that exercise and enrichment are these are the the main things you could do to increase neurogenesis. In the brain, correct? The 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 most the biggest things you could do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, these two these are the two largest external events, or let's say these are the two events that you can do yourself or impose on an experimental sure. to induce it. Running physical exercise uh, increases actually proliferation rates. Of cells, you can you can double the number of neurons being born in the brain by chronic running, and it's not an acute event. You have to do it over time. But uh, in what we call environmental enrichment or complexity of a living, having animals live in a complex environment, doesn't um, increase proliferation. What it does normally during your life when you're when you have neurogenesis occurring. Many of the cells that are born actually die. There's a selection process. You're selecting those that are most active that integrate into the circuit, right? Mm. And what enrichment does, because of the complexity of the environment, more of those cells that are born actually survive. So in the end of the day, in an enriched environment, you have more cells than you would in a non-enriched environment. With running, if you don't have an enriched environment associated with it, you'll have a burst of proliferation, but then they'll die. But you'll end up with both enrichment and running having about the same amount of cells. What's what's coming interesting now is the the cells that survive and are increased in running have different qualities than those that got there by virtue of complexity, by the complex environment. And that's being teased out right wow. now. So it's Pretty exciting. I, I remember it was in. I don't remember when it was. It was a period of early during grad school. It was at neuroscience, and I could. I saw all these papers. I remember with you know things improving. Uh, you know, increasing yeah. neurogenesis. I remember the the thing. I remember is the the, the wheel, the the mouse on the wheel. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and reading that it was really cool. Um, you know, we're we're up against the clock. So what I want to do is uh, let's talk about the little bit moving now into the hu- human system. So now now with the you know the advent of this, you know, incredible technology and uh, you know pluripotent stem cell biology and reprogramming techniques. You, so you, you you now have this sort of tractable, manipulable system in humans that you can uh, use to study neurogenesis and things like this. So talk a little bit about it, what, what you're now doing with these types of models and how you're using that to s- possibly study disease, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah, no, we we have um, become interested in using these these. Uh, what's called reprogramming technology where you can take somatic cells from anybody basically and and either reprogram them into embryonic stem cells so they can be differentiated into neurons or other cell types or you can directly reprogram cells from from a somatic cell into a neuron now 
our goal in, in this regard relative to what we talked about before is we're trying to build a hippocampus, a human hippocampus in vitro. Sure. So we're developing techniques to differentiate cells into granule neurons, which wow. are the ones that are in the dentate gyrus, and CA3 neurons, which are connected to them, and CA1. And we're combining with uh, efforts with uh, bioengineers that are microfabricating uh, microfluidic chambers mm. that allow us to separate these different cell types into different areas. So we, our, our, our goal is to get a circuit, basically, uh, with neurons connected so we could actually generate a LTP-like response that's, from stimulating cortical that's so cells cool. and get it. Now, that basal, uh, because many diseases have an association with hippocampal function, we'd be able to then build our circuit from normal, healthy individuals, compare those to bipolar or schizophrenic. But in the context, we can actually add neurogenesis within that in vitro setting by seeding the mature granule cells with stem cells in that environment. So we're, we're looking to, to develop as much as we can that in, in an engineered environment. I think this with this this uh, this is one example of how this technology is moving to moving away from just sort of grossly differentiating cells into neurons or glia or whatever into real circuits. And I think some of the efforts into organoids that uh, investigators have been developing is another way to do that to get a, a three dimensional structure, some sort of organization. Awesome. So uh, finally, uh, before we let you go, I have to ask you about these line elements and uh, neuronal diversity. I, I remember uh, get, watching you give a talk at Rockefeller, and it just sort of blew my mind what these uh, retro transposons, these jumping elements in the in uh, the genome are doing, and it seems a lot more than was previously thought. Uh, can you explain that idea and what the implications are? Right. Let me, with none of these, it was another one of these uh, moments where, you know, you have to make a choice of whether or not you're going to follow something or not. <laughs> right. We're doing, we were making, uh, this is all in a, a neurogenesis story, where in vitro we made neurons, astrocytes, microglia in mice for mouse cells, uh, actually it was rat cells at the time, and we made some of the, some early what are called microarrays where we're measuring the mRNA or expression of mRNAs that are unique to these different cell types. And we isolated a subpopulation of cells that we called, that were, what we, we thought were purified neuroprogenitor cells. Mm. And so we did these arrays on all of them. Now, one thing that's a little complicated, but let me just say that the original arrays are not like the microarrays that you guys grew up with or with RNA-seq. Or that that has everything on a little plate, but rather these early ones, you all the possible RNA that could be made was being interrogated uh, on these dishes. That means not only the coding sequence, but the non-coding, okay. the repetitive elements, and everything like that. Okay. So anyway, what we found, and I'll just make it quick, <laughs> that there was uh, in these neuroprogenitor cells had very high expression of these mobile elements, and mobile elements. Are, are stretches of DNA, and they account for 50% of the DNA in your brain. Yeah, that's, that's crazy to me. That is so crazy. They, Sorry. And some fraction of these uh, segments retain the capacity for making copies of themselves 
and jumping, making a nick in the DNA and inserting themselves randomly, quasi-randomly throughout the, uh, throughout the genome. So we found this was happening in neural progenitor cells in mouse, and then subsequently uh, this is also happening in human, human neural progenitor cells when they're dividing. And the question now is, uh, you know, how often, how is it regulated, what effect is this having on us? And, and there's a lot of people now that are, that are working on this. There's evidence that it's elevated in certain types of diseases, more jumping that we're calling a trans, transposition occurring. But this has also opened up the idea that it's not just these mobile elements, but there's lots of events that are occurring on, in individual cells uh, within the brain that are, that are making the brain what we're calling mosaic, or uh, the DNA content within different cells within the same brain mm. are actually slightly different, which gives this idea of diversity, not just between individuals, but within individuals as well. Yeah, that is so profound that that the DNA would be that different between each neuron in the brain, and I just, I mean the implications it, it could go so far, uh, it, you know, in terms of uh, how, personality traits or whatever disease, like you said, it, it, it could. It, I think there's a lot of potential there in the future. So I'm really I, my excited my, about my quick my quick final question is for people out there thinking, man, jumping who know nothing about this, they're thinking, you know, jumping DNA. That sounds like it could be bad, and the answer to that is yes, correct? I mean, uh, things yeah, jumping around and going into wrong places, it could be a bad thing as well, no? That's right, and originally it was conceived of, at, was, was discovered by Hay Kazazian, who was at Johns Hopkins University, and they were found in cancer. So there was evidence for these insertions contributing to peripheral cancers, but it wasn't thought that uh, but the way to think about this in a more global sense is that in order for a species to survive and, and, and propagate and be healthy within a complex environment, diversity is an important, uh, it's an important issue. The, the more diverse you are, the more uh, able a species is to respond to the differences that may approach them from the complexity of life that, that happens around us. And this is true uh, in, in, in the brain, which is a structure that's made early, but we're basically stuck, except for in the hippocampus, pretty much what we have for our whole life. So building some diversity into the brain structure is a buffer, is almost a buffer. And the fact that it is random, it's asserting random, is typical of evolution. You wouldn't have it targeted. You just give yourself a little bit of extra diversity so that you would be prepared to respond to a variety of things that may approach you uh, throughout your life. Yeah, it's almost like the diversity in the VDJ recombination, the immune system. It's that, sort of like that's, that. That's the right. That's the right way to think yeah. about it. So uh, it's not and, the same. But it's the right way to think about and, it. And you only found that in the brain, correct? Like it's primarily in the brain. You looked at other tissues, correct? Well, okay. <laughs> well, yes, that's what, that's what we originally reported. And we are we will be reporting that it's not unique to the brain. Okay. All right. Great. Well, there you go. Right there. All right. Well, we we could talk for three hours here, (laughs) but I mean, we unfortunately cannot. Um, You know, he is uh, Dr. Fred Gage. Everybody, if you did not know, now you definitely know, (laughs) and you can find out more about his research i'm sure just google the name and go on pubmed you can find it he will also be a speaker at the isscr meeting in sweden which um Josef and i will be attending and doing interviews on the floor everyone still please go out and register 
Dr. Gage, thank you so much for the time. Really, we really, sure. really appreciate it. I Thanks, know you're guys. a busy man. Thank Thanks you. Have, have a wonderful night. Thank you. Right. Take Great. care. Enjoy it. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was a good interview. Man, that was awesome. Nice. Yeah, obviously, I think everybody heard Yosef and I like a, like, like children in there like, oh, please tell us more. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a great interview, so uh, I'm really... I would really like to talk to him more about the line element piece. We didn't get to jump into that too much, no pun intended, uh, but um, you that's that in fascinating there. to me. I got man. that joke. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's fascinating. I didn't realize there was that much in the brain. That's like you know, like over fifty percent. Yeah, it's crazy. Kind of that you know, just the idea that every single neuron would be different genetically is so profound. You know, it's it's that I you know that's a new idea for me. I you, you kind of think like maybe one has a random mutation de novo, but the idea that these jumping elements create you know each neuron to be different it's sort of like the brainbow pl- project where they had the different you know um, yes yes uh colors for every neuron but uh anyhow that was cool uh, that was very cool now we're gonna go from that seriousness to uh ranting it up actually and- i have i have a rant update remember our one about the usb cord somebody yes. on kickstarter got a, a funding for an adapter that makes it reversible so uh you could plug it in either way. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, so a couple got... people came to have to wrote me about that USB. In fact, you know, I love. I know people listening to the rants. Paul, Paul, Paul texted me the other day. He's like, "By the way, I got a rock in my shoe the other day." <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> that's great. Um, um, yeah, right, so, so we're gonna uh, rant. Actually, the the new USB cord too for the new uh, MacBook, the USB C, is actually reversible. So people are listening. They're they're they definitely designed it with us in mind. So um, yeah, so uh, on to a new rant, a fresh new rant is uh, this one's kind of stupid, but it's funny. It's 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 packaging peanuts. You know those little foamy things that come in packages. Everybody knows packing peanuts. <laughs> they are the worst. They're the and, worst, and they get everywhere. I wish we could like s- there was some sort of way of recycling uh, their use or just phasing them out in general. You phase them out, definitely yeah. phase them out. Um, I- you know what's you know what's besides the peanuts. Like, you get excited. You wait for your package to come, you know, and, like, you're tracking it. It's almost here. It yeah. gets there. You open up the box, and you see all these peanuts. And, and it just it kills my buzz. I'm just like, are <laughs> you like, serious? Oh. Really? Now I got to deal with these things to get to this thing. That's It's, it's probably, like, you know, they always unnecessarily put it in a big box with all these peanuts for this little thing. And the peanuts get everywhere. But they, then when Joseph and I were talking about they stick to things. Yeah, the static electricity. And then I've had it where I've, like, taken the box and dumped them all out and then dumped the item out with it. And then next thing I know, I'm, like, searching my garbage because, you know, it just came out with it. Or there's an extra item in there and you didn't find it because it's, like, lost in the sand that is the packaging peanuts. I They're just the worst. I, I, I There's got to be a way of phasing them out in society we we should just get rid like somehow get rid of the the distributors and the people that make them <laughs> just make it illegal i i don't know what we should plus they're not they're bad for the environment i think they gotta be i mean it's like styrofoam cups. i think they're like petroleum based or something like that which yeah. is obviously not good yeah. but all i know is that it's it's there's no good way to to like I've tried strategizing how to get them. There's no good way around it. They're getting out. They're getting over. They're sticking to your fingers, your hands, everywhere. The people were calling for a moratorium on germline gene editing. Yeah. We need to call for a moratorium on packing peanuts. Alongside of that, yeah, that'd be great. Let's get on that. So, 
Uh, that's our rant, and we're sticking with it. <laughs> so, yeah, we're uh, done with peanuts, everybody. Yeah. We're done with peanuts. All right, man. We got uh, we got 42 now done onto 43 in a few weeks. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Yost, my man, I will uh, talk to you on the other side. All right. See you later.